This is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and welcome to Palliative Care Chat, the podcast series brought to you by the online Master of Science, PhD, and Graduate Certificate Program in Palliative Care at the University of Maryland. I am delighted to welcome you to our podcast series titled Founders, Leaders, and Futurists in Palliative Care, a series I have recorded with Connie Dolan to support coursework in the PhD in Palliative Care offered by the University of Maryland, Baltimore. Hello, this is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and welcome to our continuing series of leaders and futurists and founders in palliative care. We're very excited about our series. Uh, My name is Lynn McPherson. I'm the program director of the online PhD master's and graduate certificate program in palliative care at the University of Maryland, Baltimore. And I'm joined by my good friend, Connie Dolan, who's a faculty member in the PhD and the master's program. And she will be introducing our guest today. Connie, take it away. Great. So we're so pleased today to have Terry Attilio, who is um, trained as a social worker, but has really been a leader in many other ways. Um, She has been leading in New York City. Um, She wrote, co-edited the first textbook of social work, uh, palliative care, palliative care social work, um, which was really an amazing feat um, for any of you who have Uh, embarked upon doing textbooks. Um, And also Terry continued to be a leader in New York City in terms of leading at the Beth Israel Palliative Care Program, which did a really amazing job at sort of thinking palliative care early on in different dimensions, having an inpatient unit, um, but also really thinking about how it was training and educating the the, um, clinicians of the future. Um, So Terry, really welcome today. And we look forward to kind of hearing your thoughts. Um, So would you like to tell us how you kind of were in palliative care and social work and kind of where you felt like you were gonna step in and say, okay, I need to be a part of this and I need to help sort of foster the next generation. Yes, and thank you for allowing me to think about this and to talk about it. Um, I was really blessed in some ways, although I didn't understand it at the time, to be working at Memorial Sloan Kettering when the project on death in America got off the ground uh, with Kathy Foley and um, George Soros Foundation funding an uh, an enormous uh, number of, a large number of what were called faculty scholars at that point in time. And what was most interesting about that is I watched as Russ Portnoy and Kathy Foley began to represent and present palliative care at Memorial Sloan Kettering, which is just interesting in itself because you know and I know that oncology has this interesting banter that goes back and forth with palliative care about what they're going to call us, whether we're going to be allowed to be palliative care or whether we have to call ourselves supportive care um, because uh, folks, my fantasy about that is folks don't believe that people can actually learn what palliative care is and after they learn what palliative care is, uh, want it because it is so humane and so expert in terms of how it cares for patients. So I was back at Memorial Sloan Kettering and the project on death in America began with physicians and nurses. It did not begin with social workers. It took a number of years before social workers were engaged in that and we were not called faculty scholars. This is all, Uh, interesting to me and perhaps to others who are listening because it has to do in some way with the place of the disciplines in this work. Um, And most people feel and see um, that social work is not a majority discipline in hospital settings. 
Um, they are the first line of mental health, but they are not a majority discipline. In fact, we are a minority discipline in hospital settings. And that's a very interesting place to be in because what it requires and certainly what it required of me was to figure out what is my place in this. Um, part of that, uh, part of that um, was affirmed when the Project on Death in America decided they were gonna call us social work leaders. We were not called faculty scholars, we were called social work leaders. So when you think about origin story of palliative care, for me, this is part of it. This is part of the origin story and what we continue to work on, if you will, as a specialty, as a specialty. So um, they finally uh, decided they were gonna put a lot of money into what was called faculty scholars and through the whatever of Russ Portnoy, visionary guy, um, he suggested we should have a fellowship at Beth Israel a social work fellowship. And that was the Project on Death in America Social Work Leadership Award that we got was to establish the first social work fellowship, postgraduate fellowship in palliative care in the country. It also was used to establish a social work listserv, which has been in place, believe it or not, I just had to check this out because we have to find a new home for it. Um, uh, I ju we just checked this out. It's been in, pl in place for approximately 20 years. Wow. And it has exchanged 23,000 messages. Mm -hmm. So we created a listserv and we created a social work fellowship, which in some ways, there are now a couple of fellowships in the country, not a lot, social work right. fellowships, postgrad social work fellowships. Um, and the fellowship has continued through the philanthropy of a, of a private person um, whose daughter we cared for, Russ and I cared for her. Uh, and as a consequence of that care and that commitment, she funded the fellowship, I'm gonna say for 15 years, for a really long time. That all, all that said, the true thing I think that begin, began to give me a voice and social work a voice was the text, the text of palliative social work. And we would not have had that text had it not been for Betty Farrell. Betty Farrell, a wonderful nurse. I a, well, she's more than a nurse. You, I don't have to tell anybody what Be Betty Farrell's credentials are. You all know Betty Farrell. Um, she um, motivated us and encouraged us and encouraged Oxford to support a textbook of palliative social work. That is a very concrete thing. It is a concrete thing and a concrete message to the world. Um, and we're now doing the second edition which I will not talk about because <laughs> it's like, yes, I said, yes, we will do this. But it is, um, it is a, it's an amazing experience in one sense because it really does reflect the growth in the field of palliative care. And it also reflects the um, enhanced expertise of social work and the enhanced expertise that we need if we are going to continue as a specialty, mm -hmm. as a specialty. Um, and what, what I ha eventually came to was that silence gives consent. Mm -hmm. And I had to figure out how to have a voice mm -hmm. because social work has a unique way of viewing the world. We view persons and environment that really is essential to palliative care. It is a basic social work tenant. And not only do we, we, we view patients in their environment, which we all know has become so much more essential when we talk about social determinants of health, when we talk about the inequities in our country, um, 
understanding a person's environment is essential. And the second thing that we, we come at this work from has to do with starting where a patient is. And that became very important to me when I saw how delegitimized many of our patients were, um, especially in their reports of pain, in their experience of pain and symptoms. So I finally decided that I could not be silent anymore and that I had to stop feeling sorry for myself and that I was either going to have a voice um, and, and the consequence of that. And this is a challenge for social work because we are a minority discipline in the settings in which we work. Mm -hmm. And yet we have amazing perspectives um, that frame how palliative care in my brain is at its best. It's at its best because it's talking about human beings, how they live their lives and how that all relates to medical decision-making. So finally, and I don't know when it was, probably after the book or maybe a little bit before the book, I just decided that uh, we could no longer act as if um, we didn't um, act as if we didn't have the, um, the autonomy and the authority to take a larger place in this work because it wasn't gonna be given to us, I will tell you. If you look at the origin story of palliative care, it, it's, not, it's quite hierarchical, it's quite white, we, we know that. Um, and it wasn't gonna be given. So that meant there would be some kind of tension and there continues, I think, to be uh, some kind of tension in terms of the important work of how we work together, how we understand. And I, I, I know that your program will, will promote, will support this, how we understand that while there are shared skills, we come at this work from a discipline specific training and we ought not to give that up. Mm -hmm. I know I learned a ton about pain, but I didn't know what my doctors knew. I had to count on them for certain aspects of the work that we were doing and they had to count on me and we had to count on nursing and we had to count on chaplaincy. So this idea of egalitarian you know, process between us all um, is something I think we, <clears throat> we have to be careful of. I think we need to be the experts at, at who we are, the discipline that we have chosen and weave all that together because palliative care is the beautiful place where it gets woven all together where it gets woven all together. So social work is unique in that sense um, because of the, as is chaplaincy. You're certainly a minority discipline in the work. The, the worry, and I've had this worry for a long time. I continue to have it. I think the fusion of palliative care and hospice is, is challenging. Um, and creates um, both opportunities and also um, challenges. I think that hospice, when it started to call itself an industry, crossed some kind of a line that I don't understand, it must have something to do with profit making. And I think that we have to be really careful about how we bridge that relationship. Not only careful, but I think that we have to become a voice because um, there is something certainly about um, calling the care of people who are coming to the end of their lives an industry that for me defeats what palliative care has been intending to build over the last two or three decades, two or three decades. So that, um, that's like a worry that I have and I'm saying it here because you're, you're doing this course. 
and I don't know where it's going to be. Oh, the other worry that I have um, uh, about where palliative care is going. One of the questions was about what's the tipping point? What was a tipping point in palliative care? So the tipping point, I think, for social work was the book. It was concrete. It was on a shelf with physician, nursing, and social work. There was something about that representation that was important for us. Um, more, more um, when I think about tipping point, I get a little nervous about that because I think I've listened and, and read Diane Meyer talking about the tipping point, perhaps that we we achieved uh, during the pandemic when everybody needed us in a way that they had not needed us before. And what I worry about is that that is going to skew the whole process that we were working toward, which had to do with primary palliative care. So how do, how do we balance that? Yes, we are important. Yes, we've done tremendous work during the pandemic. We had their backs, as the quote says, we had their backs. But how do we, how do we now get back to what we hope will be some semblance of normalcy in terms of care? Um, how do we get back to this idea that palliative care specialists will never meet the need that we are talking about? in this country and certainly around the world. So how do we now get back to the idea that primary palliative care, that we have to support our colleagues, our physician and nursing colleagues and social work colleagues. We did a second book, which is a guide. And the guide is for health social workers. It's mm -hmm. our version of primary palliative care for health social workers. Mm -hmm. um, it's based on the eight dom domains, Connie. You're intimate in the eight domains, right? Yes. It's based on the eight domains. Each chapter is a domain of palliative care. The message of that book was you have skills. You cannot walk into a patient's room who's just been diagnosed with metastatic cancer and begin the conversation with discharge planning. That is not, that is not social work. That right. is not social work. So, so how do we blend? How do we figure out how to move ahead primary palliative care as well as continue to build the specialty, the experts, the leaders, the researchers, and so on and so forth, um, who will lead the specialty forward, lead the specialty forward. I don't wanna lose that because we will never be able to care for all the people that need palliative care. Certainly not around the world, just forget the world. You've brought up some interesting points, though, because I think, um, first of all, you know, I think that you have witnessed this uh, real growth. And I think your role in social work, you know, I think this part that you bring up, Terry, is this sort of equity amongst the team. You know, we talk about equity, but we haven't talked about equity really with the team. And what does that mean? Um, and I would suggest to you that I've had social workers who are better at assessing pain than some of my interns or residents. And so I don't wanna also minimize the sense that there's an assessment piece and whether social workers can prescribe is one thing, but then sometimes they do, and, and chaplains as well, do a much better job of assessing because they're really, really meeting that patient where they're at and understand the context. And so I just really wanna acknowledge that. And I think you're right about some of the hierarchy, particularly as you think about palliative care coming out of the academic medical center, 
it's very different when you go into a community or a rural setting. And I think it kind of, it um, changes a bit because there isn't such this rigid part of it. But I also just want to think about, you know, when you've talked about this primary palliative care, you bring up this important point that I think for our students to think about. And yes, we were part of the pandemic. It wasn't ours because it was really critical care and the ED folks. And we were teaching these skills. But when I go back and look at some of the resources that we were putting out there quickly, right? We had to get things quick and we didn't have the time. But we have to go back and look at some of those and say, we did that because we were in a pandemic and we still are, but we have a little, some places right now are in a little bit of a lull. We'll see what happens in the fall. But is that the highest quality that we want to have, right? We put stuff in place, but I go back and look at some of it and I'm like, oh, is that what I want long-term, right? So there's mm -hmm. a quality mm -hmm. part, but then there's also to your point of saying, we do have to go back to that. And we have to make sure that we're, I would say inculcating it in all areas. And you know, I think for me, having started off in the community in hospice, then growing um, a hospice in a rural area and a home care part of a, a palliative care part of a home care back to a hospital, back to the community. I have worried a lot regionally because I've been across the country um, because I see some such skilled social workers who are relegated to discharge planning. And, you know, sometimes I'm saying to them, well, can you do this part of your role? And there's this part of saying, well, I'm not allowed. And that just breaks my heart, right? Um, and so I guess my comment to you is, so how do we around that kind of help um, empower our social workers to work to the top of their education and their license? And then how do we, as a field continue to kind of think about that. You know, what's interesting to me about that, about that um, observation is that from my point of view, it is not just social workers mm -hmm. that need folks to advocate for them. I think it is our doctor colleagues who are expected to see people in 15 or seven minutes mm -hmm. um, and, and provide compassionate care. I think we, as a, as a specialty, Need, need to think about the level of advocacy rather than uh, what, I, what I often see is accommodation to crazy things in our system. Crazy things in our system, like the hospitals that are running around trying to sign somebody on to hospice before they die so the mortality rates are not what the mortality rates might be. Why would we accommodate to that? So I think that we need as leaders and as future leaders, and this is not an overnight thing. You know, those social workers who are doing discharge planning and say, you know, some of them are saying that's because what they tell me, this is all I can do. And others are, you know, quite comfortable in that place. And we need to make them uncomfortable. You know, we need to, we need to create discomfort around that. Um, so, but I, I think it is broader. I think that there is a level of advocacy that we need to be taking on, and maybe we are, and I just don't know about it, <laughs> on a national level where we as specialists are saying, you can't possibly do this kind of work in 15 minutes. Um, what we expect and <clears throat> what we hope will become um, care of human beings rather than, than care of bodies. So I, I um, I appreciate how that uh, sort of fixes on social work 
and what's really interesting to me is, is I see it also, um, and I'm not sure why this would be, I, I see it also quite painfully in my physician colleagues. I, I, and perhaps in nursing as well, I don't have the same sense about, about that. And maybe also it is because when we talk about how we work together as a team and, and equity and so on and so forth, we are not always we, we are not always morally distressed by the same things. Mm. We are not always upset by the same things that we see in our world because we have different responsibilities. Mm. I, I say to when I teach social workers, you will never write a prescription that is by a person's body, you know, when they're, when they're found dead because they took all those pills. Okay. Anyway, it, it, it makes me profoundly sad, um, but it also is really, really important that while we can talk about equity between the disciplines, we do not carry the same risk. And we need to be talking about that. We need to talk about it out loud because you cannot have an authentic conversation if you cannot talk about the difference in risk. You cannot have an authentic conversation if you're not talking about money and who's doing the billing and who's not doing the billing. We don't bill. Most of the time we don't bill. And a lot of my colleagues wanna start billing for advanced care planning. Everybody's going to be running around trying to figure out how to bill for advanced care planning because it can now be paid for. What is the matter with that? You know. I, so I think that, that um, equity is very interesting in teams, uh, what it means um, and how we how we achieve authentic conversations. I had a doctor once said to me, you will never understand, Terry, what it feels like to do something like a resuscitation that you feel is medically, morally, and ethically wrong. But you do it because you don't have the whatever, the legal authority, the whatever authority, or the family has not agreed. And, and I got that. And then I said, then you will never understand what it feels like to have a family coerced into a decision because of the way we use language and the way we talk to patients. So there is a difference in how we see the same event, the same event. And I think that's beautiful to talk about because it really reflects our different training. Mm -hmm. And, and, and we, that's why we bring people together in a team. That's the richness of team is the different training. Well, what you also bring up is this interesting context. Um, uh, and there's a couple pieces to it. One, um, I have been working with some people because this whole part about billing is crazy because there is no data and it's not been done on palliative care and it's been brought over from ED or whatever, but not really about our practice. So one, it isn't even representative of the intensity. Two, as you know, it isn't equitable because we aren't necessarily charting for everybody's time. Um, Three is this interesting part that I see, and I'd be curious, I mean, and I think for our leaders, it's really important. We in palliative care really focus on this very personal um, engagement with patients and families. We like it, of course, to be in the same room, but of course, COVID has taught us that telehealth is part of it. And I, I do think there's some positive things about telehealth. So I think in terms of the equity lens, it there is some potential um, that we mm. need to pay attention to. And other people will know, no, no. And, and I always maintain if it's easy for us, then that means it's hard for the patients. It should be hard for us because this is hard work. But where I was going with you was 
I find that teams are not willing to put in that time and energy that it really takes to have those hard conversations. They're willing to do it with the patients and families, but as a team to sit down, it's like, oh, we don't have the time, that's not important. And yet we know that face-to-face -face time as a team is critical and will make or break a team in the long run. Or also um, we sort of saw in the pandemic, the teams that were well-established did better than the ones who had not done this because they got pulled apart. And, and yet, with generational differences and age differences, it's a very interesting part about the work that's necessary and appreciated by the uppers that like spending an hour with your team is well worth the investment, right? Mm -hmm. Even mm -hmm. if it's not and, and so we get into this whole piece. And so how do we help our leaders understand we need it all. You're going to need to spend time as a team so you can stay together in these difficult times. You are going to disagree sometimes and that's okay. And if you don't, if you're constantly looking outward instead of inward, then your work isn't going to be very good and you will get into more of this moral distress because there's no place to even mention it. So it's an interesting thing for the future that I don't think we thought about as much maybe 10 or 15 years ago. I think it was like, oh, of course, if you work together, it'll be fine. But I don't, I think that's not true. Mm -hmm. You know, the other interesting, as I was listening to you, I was also wondering, and you have to know you're talking to somebody that does not have a smartphone. I only have a flip phone that I take out when I travel. I do not carry a phone with me. Um, and so, but, and I also, I do wonder the technological connection that people have mm -hmm. all the time. You know, they're texting each other, all kinds of connecting going on, not necessarily in the same physical space. You're not necessarily seeing each other seeing each other's facial expressions and all that. And I do wonder if part of what we've seen change over the years has to do with this idea that we are communicating because there's a lot of communication going on, but it's not necessarily in the same spot and it's not necessarily putting the technology away and actually talking to each other face-to-face, face-to-face. Um, you know, that's interesting because I've noticed that I, I'm not content with the phone call anymore. I at least want FaceTime or a Zoom because I want to look at people. Yeah. 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 No, I think that's true. I mean, I think that, you know, it was hard to get people to do Zoom calls, or whatever, because they were like, oh, you're, you're trying to invade my space. And yet I think we saw after that, like, when you can't see somebody's expression to what they're saying, right, you can't put that whole, you know, non- um, nonverbal language together with what they're saying. And I think that perhaps, you know, this substitute, if we can't be in the same room, how does that, right? And it, it can work for a bit of time, but then I think there's a sense of like, finally needing some sort of time. I, I know that with my own team, like we didn't see each other for over a year. And then we had a socially distant you know, masked party in somebody's backyard and, you know, no hugging was allowed or anything like that, but there was something just about being within six feet of each other and laughing and joking and all being together. And, you know, I, I was sort of thinking about how long it's been and sort of thinking, okay, it's been like seven or eight months, like maybe we just need to meet outside in the park again, right? Um, but I think it's, it's funny how those things, what holds us together. And I think that's, you know, I think the other part, Terry, that I think a lot about is that this, this use of all of the teams, and I think our social work and chaplain colleagues are so important for 
just this emotional intelligence that many people don't have. Mm -hmm. And yet I don't want them to ever have to be responsible totally for the team health because that's not fair either. And I see a lot of teams like saying, oh, well, since we have a social worker and chaplain, they're responsible. And yet it puts them in this place of not being to be part of it because then they have to pull back and monitor. Um, so thoughts about that? It was, what's really interesting about that is I always, it always makes me nervous when I hear, you know, the social workers are the wellness people or something. I don't know, they have titles for people who watch out for the wellness of a team. Um, and I, you know, my thought is always, and what about my wellness? Who's watching out for my wellness? Because why would we assume that mine is any less, how many less vulnerable than, the, than, than other folks? So, and we, we take it, which is so interesting to me. I have a worry about us doing advanced care planning. My brain, you can't do advanced care planning unless you know good, good unless you've got good medicine, unless you, unless this patient understands their medical circumstance. And we are not the experts on that. We are, we certainly are the experts on the emotional and what will happen with your family if you do it this way. So I get a little nervous as we try to figure out how to be part of this constellation. Um, how we accept things and, and engage in things that um, that we need to be more cautious about. We just need Which to is interesting because respecting choices would say, you know, they taught volunteers how to do advanced care planning. And um, I've just listened to all seven modules and, and they use the example of, you know, in case you get hit by a car, which I thought that's not necessarily what I would use. And in this time and age, I think I would say, you know, COVID is around, like, have you thought about that? But anyway, um, and they're very clear that it's not a clinician. And in fact, the clinician can be clearer. So it's going to be, I mean, the, the volunteer can be clearer because they don't have a bias. So it's going to be really interesting, I think, of like who plays out in terms of, of you know, different roles. And I guess, you know, in that, you know, I, the other part that you brought up earlier is what is the status of <clears throat> um, education for social workers? You mentioned there are not very many fellowships. And when I do an online search, I can't find very many graduate programs in social work. Um, so you want to speak a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So there's a, a postgrad program at NYU. Um, there's a postgrad program at Smith. <clears throat> there's a postgrad program at the University of California, San Marco. Um, there's, uh, yeah, so in terms of pure social work, um, mm -hmm. Fordham, Fordham and NYU have at the master's level <clears throat> selected students who are supported in a palliative care track, if you will. Maybe mm -hmm. they're given some kind of financial support. I don't know about that because I stay away from it. I teach in all of them um, and on those three I teach in. Um, and I teach at Fordham. Um, and so, so the Fordham program, the NYU program are at the level of master's degree with a special specialization in palliative care. UCSM is across the country. So it's, it's done through the internet. It's not even Zoomed. Most of it is writing, writing really. It's a course that goes on for, I think eight months. Eight months, it's a long course, and uh, I only teach a very small part of it. And the course at Smith has been in existence for a long time, since the Project on Death in America. I believe NYU and Smith's course um, were initially funded in part by Project on Death in America. I can't swear to that, but it seems to me there's some kind of a link there. Um, and they continue to have a program which 
before COVID was uh, people came to Northampton for a week and they studied together and learned together and then they went back to their various places in the, in the country uh, and had mentors and so on and so forth. So there are, and I don't know how to get this out there, I find it really interesting because you're very involved in palliative care nationally and across you know, organizations and so on and so forth. I'm gonna tell you there are hundreds of social workers who have been special, specialty palliative care trained. And then are those same social workers, I mean, I know that, um, you know, we've heard a lot in terms of the future of trying to get certification for all the disciplines and we have it for medicine, we have it for nursing. I know social work has it. I, I don't know of the numbers because I know at first it was under NSW and then it's kind of moved over to Schwippen, um, you know, and I know Lynn dreams of having certification for pharmacy, um, <laughs> but that's a whole political beast. Right. You know, thoughts about how are, how are the, the field is getting social workers to get certified to kind of demonstrate that. Yeah, yeah. So it's, uh, I don't know, maybe certification got off the ground three years ago. Um, and I, I'm not sure how many social workers have been certified. Um, but, um, you know, I, I know how to find that out. So uh, it's a test-based certification which is very different than the NASW certification, which really was watered down and had no test. It had no demonstration of what, what perhaps you need to learn or need to understand to be a palliative care social worker. So the certification is in place. I don't know, you know, certification in order to be sustainable has got to bring in money. It's a complex, you know, in, in our country, everything comes down to money. Um, and, um, and so, uh, and, and now Vicki Leff is the person, she's like the executive director of the certification program. So that's a step in the right direction. That means, that means to me that there is enough financial foundation, if you will, to have somebody in that role, to have somebody in that role. So I think it's maybe three years we've had the certification. So that's really important. Um, I, you know, my fantasy was that the primary palliative care, so palliative social work book would somehow be integrated into health social work curriculums in master's degree programs. That's still my fantasy. I don't think it's happening, um, but it would be wonderful because what we learned when we did that book is that in some ways by creating the specialty and I don't know if this has happened in medicine and nursing because there's so many more um, in numbers, but that by creating the specialty, perhaps we did not honor our healthcare colleagues in the way that we needed to honor them. Mm. And so, so we created another hierarchy, mm. essentially, not intentionally in an effort to join this hierarchy. You know, it's really so interesting when you think about power and you think about identifying, identifying with the power structure and how one does that. So I can say that the best thing that ever happened for palliative social work was to have the book on the shelf. But by having the book on the shelf, what we also did was we said, we have a skill set that you do not, right? This is a specialty skill set like oncology and nephrology and so on and so forth. But palliative care, many of the skills of palliative care are skills that health social workers either have or ought to have. Mm -hmm. So we need, well, I feel like we need to sort of backtrack or we need to recover that connection. Um, and I, I think about it as fluidity, that we need to help social workers 
to recognize the power of their work, the opportunity that they have. They're wandering around healthcare settings all the time. The rural social workers that you're talking about, they're, you know, some of them are, are uh, grounding the programs. Some of them are grounding the programs. How do we help those social workers to understand the responsibility in that? The responsibility in that, not just the power in it, because it does have power attached to it, but more than that, the responsibility as a social worker, as a social worker. Well, you so, bring up a good thing, I think, though, also of, um, I think we do have to be careful and not be arrogant at times, right? Because when you get involved with patients, um, <clears throat> we have the time, we have kind of um, marketed ourselves to say we have the time to have the conversations that you don't. Um, which I think to some people can be a bit insulting and, and that we know the patients better. And I, I do worry sometimes that, you know, you have primary care people who've known these patients for years, you have oncologists who've known them. We don't know them better. We know them differently and we've been allowed in quickly. And so I do worry sometimes um, that, that issue that you've said that we come in and pretend that we're on the white horse and gonna save everything when people have been dealing with this for a long time. And, and that whole also issue, I think that you're bringing up in a really interesting way of palliative care does have a specialty of pain and symptom management. Mm -hmm. And you know, the last NCP you know, said that we have pharmacy, social work, chaplaincy, medicine, and nursing, and we'll have to think about how to expand that, right? But each time we do. Um, but is there something that we're also trying to say, we're in this with you together right? We're partnership and we're not taking over um, because I think that people do feel like we're a threat. And sometimes we, um, I think sometimes our communication skills with our colleagues maybe are not as inclusive enough as they should be, right? Mm -hmm. Now it depends on your setting and what they're wanting, but I, I feel like that's one of the issues. And I think that's what you're getting at in this primary care of how to honor the skills that if we think of palliative care as good care that we're expecting everybody to have. And then we need each discipline to help um, articulate that. What is the expected stuff? And I think the second part, and, and Lynn and I are involved in this project, I, you mentioned early on, there's this content piece that I think we all need to know. That's a common base for all the disciplines. What we will do with that we both need role models in our discipline to tell us the extent of our roles, right? And the scope, but also to start understanding that in fact, you know, <clears throat> I can remember Terry that I would go rounding with my social worker every day of our patients and we would see them all together and kind of have our notes and comments and then we'd come back. Now, each of us would write a different note, but we saw that patient together. We were talking with the case manager. We did all the stuff with the floor. So there was a common, really a sense of working together rather than us just shedding around seeing different people. And sometimes I feel like that also has gotten lost as well of that partnership. And I know we say in the name of time, we are um, delegating people, but you know, what is that about? I don't know, it's an interesting thought. I'd be curious what your thoughts, and, and Lynn, I'd be curious your thoughts as well, because I think pharmacy even has an interesting role in that. You go first. Oh, yeah, um, I, th I think that I, I can remember going into ICUs and being and starting to consult on a case of a, you know, a patient who may have had a primary care physician for 10 years, 
nobody ever calls the primary care physician. It's, so I think that we, when we talk about fluidity and our history, we need to broaden how we look at history because oftentimes um, the work gets to totally detoured, has a changed path when you talk to people who have history with a patient. And that's the beauty for the patient and the family, I think. I think it's also the beauty for us um, because we are validated in the fact that these folks that we're taking care of have histories. They have stories and those stories don't begin with us. Those stories started a long, long time ago. Uh, I think the work, the shared work, if, you, if you're not a narcissist, you know, some people in, it doesn't matter what the profession is, you know, they just need to be the center of everything and, you know, they have the most special relationship with the patient. Nobody could ever have this kind of special relationship with the patient. You put those people in a parking lot. Um, the richness of understanding of the, the circumstance that you're joining, and that's what we do, we join as palliative care consult services, we join with others. Um, how you validate and discover what went before, for me, it has an amazing richness to it, amazing value. Um, and I think also, and I don't, I don't know a lot of the data about this. I think that burnout is a really interesting thing. And when you look at burnout with docs and nurses and social workers, there's difference in the data and so on and so forth. And I, I have this, this idea that if you value process and social work is a process discipline, we are not an outcome discipline, really. You know, we, we would like to have an outcome that we can feel proud of, but the process is very important to us. How you enter the room, the first question you ask, if you ask any question at all, the process is very important. And I have this idea, and that's why for me, team meetings are so important, that if you can learn to value process, the outcome is important, but you don't, you don't base your moral distress on the outcome because the process was meaningful, the process was valuable, the outcome might not be what you hoped it would be, but you equal, equalize the importance of those things. I think people would be less distressed by the work because what happens I think with palliative care is we, we're a consulting service. That's, I've only worked in a consulting service, that's all I know. And somebody has an idea about what we should do. You know, they want us to get a DNR, let's get real, right? A lot of times the referral is about, it may be cloaked in quality of life, but they would like us to walk out of that room with a consent or an assent for a DNR. Um, and so we also have to balance all of that in terms of consultation etiquette, giving people what they think they want, enriching the work and feeling authentic and ethical about how we join with other people in terms of, of moving the family forward. And the, the whole idea of process and outcome is interesting to me because I think, um, I think it may have something to do with how people do or do not feel valued in the work, valued in the work. Lynn, you were gonna say something else about this? No, I was just gonna say with pharmacists, I've made the comment on somebody else's podcast that, you know, we work at the big university center the patient may need a wampum dose of morphine or dilaudid or whatever. Nobody ever thinks to call the community pharmacist to say, I'm sending Mrs. Smith back to the little community here and just wanted to give you the heads up that this is really what she needs to control her pain because the pharmacist is the most frequently encountered healthcare professional 
in the community. Everybody goes to the pharmacist probably because it's free. You can get free advice. You don't have to pay any, you don't have to give your name and get free advice. So I do think it's important to loop in the pharmacist. You know what's so, so um, interesting about that? When we talk about discharge planning, in my brain, discharge planning is a therapeutic activity. If you're talking to somebody who's gonna go into a nursing home and may never see their home again, if you don't think that that's a therapeutic activity, uh, you know, I don't know where you've got your social work training, but we've whipped that out of people. You know, we said, you, you just do discharge planning. And, I, you know, we've done it too, to each other. You do, just do discharge planning. Discharge planning is a therapeutic activity. When we know that pharmacists, pharmacies don't often have these medicines. It is part of the discharge plan. In my brain, this is what I teach because I teach a lot about pain and symptom management. It is part of the discharge plan to call the pharmacy. You don't have to do it. The family can do it. Make sure the meds are in the community. Mm -hmm. So we don't send somebody out, create a crisis that we have enough knowledge to know that there's a possibility that we're gonna create. And then they bounce back and then we're into readmissions and all that data collection that people start to do. So this linkage, I think, you know, it's interesting, Lynn, because to me, it, I was talking about linking historically, but you're also talking about linking forward, right? Mm -hmm. So we link to history, who's the primary care person, who's the person that knows this patient the best over time, blah, blah, all that kind of stuff. And what you're talking about is linking forward. Mm -hmm. How do we make sure that this person gets what they need and has what they need when they go home? Well, they have enough home. stuff going on without, we owe them a seamless transition in care. Right, right, right. That's a, that's a wonderful, wonderful phrase. You know, I want, I want to say, I don't know how close we are to being finished, but I, I also just want to take this opportunity to wonder and to think about and to ask others to think about why we keep defining what we do. I don't know if you've seen the international definition for what palliative care is. Many, many people on that committee, not one social worker, Many, okay. many important people on that committee. Um, and the, the definition came out and there are people who are unhappy with it. And I don't quite understand why it is that we can't settle on a definition. And I don't know if it's because we've attached ourselves to hospice and we need to sort of just say, this is hospice, this is palliative care. Hospice does palliative care and it does it this way. Um, but I, I find it so interesting that we keep over and over what are we gonna call ourselves? How do we define palliative care? Um, it's an interesting dynamic and I don't know if it's because we don't work with a body part, <laughs> you know, so it makes it a little uh, more complicated. I, I don't know, or a, you know, or a specific disease. We don't work with a specific disease. We work with, a, with humans in circumstances, um, but it just, it makes me smile. But on another level, I'm not sure symbolically what it means about us. Well, I think you bring up for our students of thinking about where is our best time spent. I mean, and I think reinventing the definition, we really should be thinking about the work and working together and thinking about creative parts. And I think that, um, you know, you've brought up this whole part about, you know, what are some of the roles that our students can be thinking of, of, you know, teamwork, how do they need to be working together, um, really thinking about what does our history tell us in terms of moving forward. I think this whole part about moving uh, this moral distress and really thinking about process over outcomes just feels mm. really important for our students to be, no matter what discipline they are, of really 
not just focusing on the business aspects, but that we are caring for human people. Um, and I think this other part of, you know, how do we think about um, in bringing in everybody and then saying that everybody has some palliative care skills, maybe they get into primary palliative care and then they get into specialty. And so kind of that trajectory. So I think you've really offered some really lovely themes. Lynn, do you have anything else that you can think of? I'd like to ask my very last question of the interview is what advice, Terry, do you have for our PhD graduates as they embark on the next stage of their career with this degree under their belt? Think about the setting that you're going into. So you're asking that question and I'm just gonna use it as an opportunity to, to say something that I said on the AAHPM forum. We need to know the history of the institutions we're going into, the history of the palliative care team, the history of the researchers that did palliative care, what came before you, the racism history in the institutions you are going to work in, right? If you wanna make change, in a certain institution, or you wanna create equity, or you wanna do something that's going to change the, the climate, the environment of what happens to marginalized folks in the settings that you're going in. Learn the history, because if you don't know the history, you have no idea what it is that you are. There's a, a you know, the echo talks that are funded by Cambia. There was a, a, a chaplain, Jason, I always say Cameron, I don't know, I think it's Cameron, it's very close, his last name. And he talked about, uh, he's an African-American chaplain. He talked about going down to the city where he works and it's in, somewhere in Virginia, West Virginia maybe. And he said he thought what he learned there was the fact that he was black was not sufficient to bridge relationships. And we know that, right? Once you get past color, you wanna know who is this human being I'm talking to? I'm talking to, and he said, I had to learn the history of the institution in this community. So no matter where your folks go, where your learners go, where your graduates go, they need to learn what they're walking into. You know, it's a great interview question. You know, the, it's, a, it's a reversing sort of interview question. Tell me a little bit about the history of the palliative care team in this institution, or tell me a little bit about um, the relationship between this institution and the community and the larger community, because that will help me to know the, the kind of, the focus I need to have in my work, the focus I need to have in my work, or at least begin to know, begin to great. imagine the focus I might need to have in my work. Thank you. That is great advice, um, Terry. So thank you very much for spending this time with us and giving us your thoughts. Um, I, I will just say that, you know, it's been interesting for Lynn and I, because even the interviews of the different disciplines are so um, representative of where they come. And I, again, I think, you know, social work process is so interesting versus all the outcomes. So thank you again for, for spending this time with us. Yes, thank you. thank you. Thank you for asking me and good luck in your course. It's very exciting. Thank, thank you. you. Have a good day. I'd like to thank our guest today and Connie Dolan for the continuing journey in our podcast series titled Founders, Leaders, and Futurists in Palliative Care. I'd also like to thank you for listening to the Palliative Care Chat Podcast. This is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and this presentation is copyright 2021 University of Maryland. For more information on our completely online Master of Science, PhD, and Graduate Certificate Program in Palliative Care, or for permission requests regarding this podcast, please visit graduate.umaryland.edu.
www.ucsd.edu forward slash palliative. Thank you.